Hi everyone, welcome to Count Me In with Devlin and Deanna. Today we feature our heartfelt conversation with Dr. Tenzia Soto, Professor of Mathematics at Colorado State University. As a very small child, she grew up in a two-room adobe home in Mexico. She moved to Nebraska soon after and lived on a farm with her eight brothers and sisters. Tenzia earned her undergraduate and master's degrees in mathematics education at Chadron State College. She earned her PhD in mathematics education from the University of Northern Colorado. Her research focuses on the teaching and learning of undergraduate mathematics, where she embraces an embodied cognition perspective in her work. She currently serves as Associate Secretary of the Mathematical Association of America and recently received the MAA HIMO Award for Distinguished University Teaching. This conversation with Tensia underscores the influential role of an advisor, the importance of setting goals and outlining plans to achieve them, and the balance of work and care in a life. So please join us as we talk with Tensia. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited <laughs> and nervous. I'll, I won't lie. I'm nervous. <laughs> we won't be that scary. Oh, I know you're not scary. Oh, anyway. I well, because sharing our stories makes us a little bit vulnerable, I think. Mm-hmm. Very vulnerable, I would say. Mm-hmm. But that is where we like to start, Tensia. We do hope that you'll start by telling us your story. Yeah, I will. So I was born in Mexico in a little adobe home, two rooms, kitchen and bedroom. Uh, And we really struggled there financially. So at that time, it was my older sister and my mom and dad and me. And daddy got really sick, almost died. We didn't have money for medicine for him. And my maternal grandmother's wish before she passed away was for one of my my uncles, my uncle Lupe, so that's my mom's brother, to bring us to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my maternal grandmother was really the only grandparent living at that time, at that time after my maternal grandmother passed away. So, but... Um, She had pretty much disinherited my dad uh, because her husband, my grandfather, had been shot and killed. And she wanted my dad to take vengeance on that family and he wouldn't. So so that's how we that's how my dad became disinherited and really um, poor. That's what we Mm -hmm. were. So. So we came to the U.S. We already had several um, relatives here on my mom's side, mostly. And so we came to the U.S. to a small town of Moral, Nebraska, which is western Nebraska. So it's a, about 900 people live there. Uh, the reason we went there is because we had relatives there mm-hmm. and there was work there in terms of labor out in the fields. So mm-hmm. working out in the beet fields, the potato fields, onion fields. And so that's how we ended up there. Mm-hmm. Um, really, we had a lot of support from family, which was nice. And the community was just a beautiful, beautiful community. And they really helped us a lot. Um, And I might cry talking about it, but they just uh, were really good to us. Mm -hmm. 
In particular, this family there, the Dynasses. And there were several brothers in the Dynas family. Uh, and in particular, there was Vic, John, and Art, who just loved us. And they like <laughs> pampered different kids at different times. But uh, Daddy ended up working for Art. And so Art was a farmer. And Art was worried about hiring Daddy because Daddy didn't speak English. And but we had a translator and Daddy said, well, I'll work for you for free for two weeks. If you don't like my job, my work, then you don't have to pay me. Wow. Uh -huh. um, huh. and, and after a week, Art said, no, yeah, I'll hire you. And we got to move from a house where the train went by and it would shake the house. And we moved to another house where daddy would make us sit out in the car when he turned on the pilot to the furnace because he was always worried that the house would explode. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I'm not kidding. The wind was so bad and the floorboards would like shake. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, we got to move into this other two room home that had an outhouse. And I just have, I have really fond memories of this tiny little house. Um, again, a kitchen and a bedroom, and it was right outside of Art's main house, the, the big farm home. And my older sister and I used to play behind that house in an old school bus, on an old stove. We'd run around. We just, we, and my sister was really, really good at inventing games, and she would invent games and get us into all sorts of trouble. Everybody <laughs> thinks she's the angel, but she just was full of mischief and somehow it was always fun with her. So about this time, so about the time I was, I think six, maybe five or six, uh, my mom was six. I would have been six. My mom was pregnant with uh, my second brother. So there were going to be four kids now in that two room home. Mm -hmm. And Art decided to move to a different house and we were going to get to live in the big house. Mm. Wow. So this house had a big yard, a big patio. It had four bedrooms, giant closets, a dining room, two porches, a front one and a back one, running water. Oh, a bathroom, a toilet, a shower, a tub a big kitchen. And I have, I remember it all being big, just uh -huh. big. Uh -huh. um, and it was just like a fairy tale that we mm -hmm. were going to get to live there. And we had a phone and I remember my mom telling daddy, no, we, we don't need to have a phone. We don't need a phone. We can't afford a phone. And daddy was like, yes, because art needs to call me for work. So we need to have a phone. And daddy bought my mom her first washer and dryer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was just, to me, just like a fairy tale that we were going to get to live in this home. Um, and when I dream about home, I still dream about that house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long, how long did you live there? Until I was 12. Mm -hmm. And I cried when we had to move. Um, 
but you know, one of the things I remember, I just remember I have such good, happy memories, like at birthday parties, all the relatives would come out. My mom would move the dining room table and all the kids would sit on the stairs and they'd play music. They would sing and everybody would be dancing in the dining room. Mm-hmm. We just had like these big, big parties with all the cousins running around. And we just had the freedom to run wherever we wanted outside on the farm We'd play kick the can, jump rope. It Mm -hmm. was just fun. And every cousin, because it's such a big family, cousins just had other cousins to hang out with Mm -hmm. easily of the same age. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of fun. I I loved it. I learned to ride a bike there. Uh, It was just great. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 12, we had to move to another home. And... um, And this is a story I've not shared previously, and I'm going to share it today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in this house, which I did not like immediately, I don't know what it was, but it scared me a Mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. So we moved in there. I don't know. It was probably the beginning of March, end of February. Um, And the 16th of March, I, we got home off the school bus and there's an ambulance at my home Mm -hmm. and we can't figure it out why. And we walk in and my mom's just like rolling around on the uh, living room floor. My dad's sitting there next to her and they're just crying. And uh, my brothers who were still at home were crying and, my mom had accidentally uh, hit my sister, who was two at the time, with the car. She was pulling it out of the oh, garage no. and hit her, and and she died. Oh. So that was uh, that was a big turning point in my life mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like we lost my mom mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She used to be the woman who on Saturday mornings is like, okay, here's all your chores. But she'd stack the record player and we'd sing all the Mexican songs and clean. And that just died on that day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we lost our fun mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, so that was really hard uh, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you were in school at this time then? Yeah. So I was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. I'd already had a fifth grade teacher who I think you know about. Most people know about my fifth grade Mrs. Calvert story. I'll share yeah, it. The, yes. But, who kept me in during recess mm-hmm. so that I would get ahead. I didn't know that that's what she was doing, but that's exactly the sort of community that we lived in. She mm-hmm. kept me in during recess to do extra work. I thought I was in trouble. I had no idea why I had to stay in during recess. But then one day she said, you don't have to come in during recess anymore. Uh, you're going to be in the high group from now on. And I cried. I, you can probably tell I'm a big crybaby. How many times have I said, I'm going to cry? And I cried. Uh, yeah, so I cried and I said, I do not want to be in the high group. Because to me, the high group meant uh the white kids the rich kids but mostly Mm. kids who were in band that's how I associated rich if you were in band you were rich 
Um, so anyway, yeah, she walked to the room and there I was, I was in the high group. Yeah, I remember reading that story in Living Proof and crying as <laughs> as I read it. And that was quite um quite important to you. Do you think she saw something special in you or do you think she did this with all of her students that she found their strengths and and worked with them? You know, I love that question because my answer to that has evolved over the mm. years. Mm-hmm. Um initially I would have said I don't know. And then later on in reflecting, I think that she, she knew I adored her. I just thought Mm -hmm. she was the coolest teacher. And I think for her, it was just uh, a way to, to help me. And, and that maybe she saw that I did work hard because I did. I, Mm -hmm. I think if I had to use one word to describe me, I would say worker. And I'm a pleaser. So I always wanted to please my teachers. And I knew that if we weren't doing our best, I would get in trouble at home. So we were always expected to do our best. Um, And so that was just part of who I was. And now, recently, I've thought back about it. And I don't want to diminish anything about Mrs. Calvert. Uh, But people have asked, Have we've talked about... uh, the privilege of the color of our skin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm very light complected. My mom is a redhead with very white skin. She cannot be in the sun. Daddy is very dark, but so most of us are very light complected. And so sometimes I was like, she didn't do this for the other Mexican kids. Why did she do it for me? Hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I do worry, not, not worry. I don't worry about it. I wonder about it if uh, the privilege of my skin contributed to that. Mm. Um, but she was such a kind teacher. She mm. was just amazing. All, all my teachers, I can't say a bad thing about any of my teachers. They were just amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. Uh, did she see something special in me? Maybe. And how did it go being an A group? It went really well. It went really well. Uh, I was surprised. uh, And I was, uh, and it was fun. I got to meet some new kids that Kevin Kakuda, I remember that. I mostly always sat in front of him and he and I got to be really good friends because of that. It was the first time I'd really interacted with him Mm -hmm. because up to that point, I was always uh, separated with different kids. And I always had a, I had a difficult time making friends all through school. Hmm. That surprises um, me. Yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised that it surprises you, but I had a hard time because, uh, most kids were allowed to go and spend the night with their friends, go to birthday parties. And we were not allowed to do those things. Mm-hmm. And so no girl at that age wants to be best friends with somebody who doesn't get to do anything with you. Mm -hmm. Why weren't you allowed to? Do you know? Yes, I do. Uh, Well, because my parents were very, mostly my mom was very overprotective. She just had fears. uh, And part of that fear stems from living in, I think, in a society where she didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. And... 
And she was afraid. And especially after the accident, she was even more afraid and more protective. Like, no, you'll have to cross the street. You'll get run over by a car. Uh, no, we don't know. We can't trust people. We don't know these people. Mm-hmm. So she was very afraid of something happening to us. Mm-hmm. So that was the nice thing about being in the high group. Like all of a sudden I had new friends and they were guys and they weren't asking me to go to a birthday party or a sleepover so we could be friends. Mm-hmm. And that kind of was my life through high school also, that my friends were really guys. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to know a little bit more about high school for you. Okay, yeah. Uh, Again, amazing, amazing teachers. Uh, Shout out to Mr. Ingraham, my math teacher, Mrs. Quetzal, my English teacher. I actually babysat for her also. So she was, she became like a mom to me, really. Um, So that was great. Um, high school was really fun. I, so in seventh grade, let me back up to seventh grade. In seventh grade, I made the decision that I was going to be valedictorian. (laughs) And that that was the only way I was going to be able to go to college is if I got uh scholarships. So I figured becoming valedictorian was the key to that. So that was my first long-term goal that I set. I achieved it. Hey, congratulations. That is amazing. You set a long-term goal at the age of something like 13. Yes. That's really, that says something about you as a person. Yes, it does. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have been setting goals since that time and Mm -hmm. So I, and now of course I knew that my GPA wasn't really going to start counting until I was in ninth grade, but I used Mm -hmm. seventh and eighth grade to really like beef up my study habits, uh, set up time, kind of what do I need to do? And so for me, uh, sadly, my after school activity was homework. Mm -hmm. Uh, We weren't allowed to do sports again because of fear that something would happen, but also because we were on a farm and we worked all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something I haven't pointed out is that since I was six or seven, I've been working out in the fields. Mm -hmm. And so that's why in seventh grade, I'm like, this is not going to be my life for the rest of my life. I need to get a college education. I'm going to do something different. And uh, I thought I'd be a lawyer. And you will laugh at why I chose lawyer, but I think the soap operas (laughs) influenced what I thought I could do where I could make money. It could be you're either a doctor or a lawyer. Those are the rich people on the soap operas. Uh (laughs) I I had nothing to do with blood. So the lawyer seemed like the right thing to do. So what, what were you doing in the fields when you worked fields? We were hoeing beets, Mm -hmm. weeding beets, uh, beans also, and sometimes corn. Mm -hmm. And we worked, we'd get up at four in the morning, uh, come home about seven, seven thirty, have dinner, go to bed. I just was so anxious to go to bed. So I hated summer. Mm -hmm. I detested Mm -hmm. summer because it meant a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I liked the school year because it meant I could go to school. Mm -hmm and not work. So I never learned to swim. 
basically the way I can sum it up in terms of my growing up life is that I learned to work. I never learned to play mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we just, we didn't have time to play. We worked all the time. Mm-hmm. So I loved school. I loved high school. I loved pleasing the teachers. I, you know, I just loved to please people. And, <laughs> but um, it was a small school. So, you know, when I talk about my achievement of valedictorian, this, there were 54 kids in my graduating class. So it's not like a mega school or anything like that. And uh, yeah, so my math class, I loved. Mm-hmm. And my teacher, I would say, was ahead of time in terms of pedagogical practices. We always worked in groups. Even at that time, we had oral assessments. He would just like, okay, let's go out to the hall. He'd ask us questions. We'd come back in. We'd present. And if we ever needed a substitute, I was the substitute. (laughs) So because it was hard to find a math substitute. So they would go and pull me out of my other classes and I would teach the class. And at first I thought, this is crazy. Now I'm I'm not going to get to listen to the biology lecture or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I would get caught up in those other classes. So I really learned to be a good student. Uh, Did did, uh, substitute teaching help you set your next goal? You know, I actually also tutored. That was one of the nice things in the summertime. I would get called to tutor also. And I I didn't really know that I wanted to be a, a teacher until after my first year of college. So I, I went into college. I went in thinking I was going to be a lawyer. So I was a political science major. Mm-hmm. And then um, I took calculus. I went into my advisor. I said, okay, I'm going to take Calc 2 next semester. He said, well, no, you don't need Calc 2 because you're a political science major. You already satisfied the math requirement with Calc 1. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, but we didn't even come close to finishing the book. (laughs) (laughs) This is how naive I, I really was about everything. And he goes, don't you think you should be a math major? Because I was tutoring there also. I said, I definitely think I should be a math major. And that's kind of how it all happened. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't know what one did with math. So I thought I would teach because I tutored everyone. People would always ask me for help. And I somehow seemed to be good at explaining it. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the next step. How did graduate school come about? Who suggested that or whose idea was that? my undergraduate advisor. And again, that was something I'd never heard of before, didn't know anything about, had never heard of the word PhD. And I'm in my undergraduate advisor's office um, asking him about topology. I remember it was a topology question and like I'm like poking away at the problem on my paper. And he just like out of the blue says, Someday you need to go and get your PhD. And I'm like, what's a PhD? Mm-hmm. And pretty much if he said I should do something, I knew I should do it. Mm-hmm. Like he told me, uh, after because I ended up getting a master's there also. I student taught. I went to the job fair. I got lots of offers. But my student teaching was very draining for me emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to end up wanting to take all these kids home. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just was drained that way. I thought I can't do this. And so I went and told my advisor, I said, I have several job offers and that they're going to give me bonuses, but I don't think I can do that. And he said, well, you could just start our master's program here and you could get paid $3,000 a year and uh, you'll teach for us. And I said, oh, okay, but let me call my dad. So I called daddy. (laughs) I said, I'm only going to make $3,000 this year, but I can get another job and they're going to pay all my tuition and, and all the fees and everything. And daddy's like, oh, so will it help you in the long run? I said, yeah, I think I could teach college level someday. And he's like, well, then do it. Mm-hmm. And that's how that happened. Mm-hmm. Were your parents supportive of education then? Daddy was. Mm-hmm. My mom was not happy about me going away to college. Mm-hmm. Again, fears of all the bad things that would happen. And you have to remember, she was raised in Mexico where they're very, very protective of the women. Mm-hmm. And she was also raised at a time where men would kidnap women. Mm-hmm. Um, so, she, and, I mean, and it's not like a distant folks that she knew that this happened to. This had happened to her sisters, to her cousins. She knew of several women where this had happened. Mm-hmm. So she had those fears ingrained with her. Um, Daddy was always very, very supportive. uh, Mm -hmm. And it was harder with my mom. Mm -hmm. It also sounds like you had some really supportive and insightful advisors. I can't tell if you switched advisors from the first one when you were going to be political science, but that advisor said, sounds like you need to be a math major. Oh, yeah. He was definitely a political science instructor because I thought that was going to be my uh, major. And so then once I switched to math, then I had uh, a math advisor. Mm -hmm. Both of them, though, really steered, took enough time to get to know you that they could identify this as a possible way forward. Yeah. And you have to recognize that I was at small schools. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't in a class of 200 or wherever, where I could easily get lost. I was in small places uh, where people took notice um, and they got to know me as a person. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that was, that was very good for me. Mm -hmm. It's a good reminder because I think sometimes when we sort of divide up our faculty responsibilities, Sometimes we have our teaching and our scholarship and we sort of somehow, I don't know if demote is the right word, it doesn't somehow get categorized in the same magnitude as say teaching or scholarship, but your life really testifies to the importance of it. Oh, huge, Mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. And when I did go finally to get my PhD, so I got a, I got my undergraduate in math ed, and then I got a master's in math ed. And then I don't know how, but I knew I wanted a PhD in math ed. I, I didn't even know if that was really a thing, but mm-hmm. that's what I knew in my head I was going to do. And so I went to a program to get a PhD in math ed, a much, much, much bigger school. I was scared to death from day one. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I was intimidated, even though our new class, there were like, I don't know, maybe 30 of us, which still is kind of small. And, but everyone would say where they went to school, you know, oh, I was at UT Austin. Oh, I was, they were all at big schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody had heard where Shadron State College was at. <laughs> so I immediately, immediately knew nothing. I immediately was petrified. And then the classes went from the 30 to 10 within week two. And I thought, oh my goodness, how am I? And it was not a supportive place at all. It was, I had great um, classmates and I've made wonderful friends there. My office mates were wonderful, but I was so scared. Uh, Literally, I made myself sick and I started having heart problems. I just, I was scared. Mm -hmm. How did you, how did you face that? Uh, what did you end up doing that you you're successful? Here you are with a PhD. How did that happen? Well, I didn't finish there. Mm-hmm. So I I took the qualifying exams. I did not pass one of them. Um, and I had I had to leave the program. You know, I mean, they say, oh, you got a master's. Well, yeah, I already had a master's, but okay, I got a second master's in pure math. Fine, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I didn't pass the comprehensive exam. Mm-hmm. And um, then I found a second program. And by this time, I felt less than human. Mm-hmm. I was embarrassed. I didn't want people to see me. I didn't want to run into anybody I knew. I just wanted to hide in a hole. This is the first time in my goal setting life since seventh grade where I'd not accomplished what I'd set out to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have never, ever, ever failed anything. Mm-hmm. So to fail a comprehensive exam, where by the way the passing score was a ten. <laughs> wow. Uh huh. <laughs> so um, that takes I, I, a, that takes a lot of strength to try again. What gave you that strength to try again? Well, uh, I'm my dad's daughter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm my mom's daughter, too. Mm -hmm. We're not quitters. We Mm -hmm. just get up and we we keep going. Mm -hmm. And um, I found a different program. And I was scared. Oh, my gosh. I thought, oh, here they're going to accept somebody who failed somewhere else. My goodness, what are they going to think of me? And... I walked in with all my math books from all the classes because I thought they're probably going to think that I don't have good enough textbooks. And so I walked in and (laughs) I, I, I seriously, I just had all these thoughts in my head. Like, like I felt like I had the word failure on my forehead, Mm -hmm. like dumb on my forehead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I went in and I met with the undergraduate advisor at the Southern institution, again, a smaller institution. And I showed him the list of courses I had. He goes, wow, you have such a strong math background. This program, Mm -hmm. you're going to be so successful here. It's going to be really easy for you. Wow. And I was like, 
what? But the first time I had some hope, I was like, oh my goodness, maybe I can do it after mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Where are you? Where, where are you? in the- it, This is at the University of Northern Colorado. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed at the map I knew. Like all of a sudden, like all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, I know how to do that. Oh yeah. Like, like I could create different proofs. Like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, let me see if I can think about that a different way. I like all of a sudden I had ideas, like all of a sudden, I mean, this doesn't sound terrible, but like the math came to me where I felt like on day one at that other place, it just like was sucked out of me because of fear. Uh-huh. But what changed? What was different about this other place? Just simply that one guy saying that you're going to be successful? That, and I think like some of the other students would always say, all the teachers just teach to you. When they're teaching, they just look at you. And again, I think as part of it was that, uh, that I, like, I, I did ask intelligent questions. I, I did know what was going on. I could follow along. Um, so slowly I started to get my confidence back Mm -hmm. and, and that was part of it. I just felt supported there. And I could go into an instructor, ask questions. They would take the time. This was not my experience at the other place. It was always like, not my office hours, talk to the TA, whatever. It just, um, I. <laughs> this is a funny story from, I mean, everybody knows what university this is, but it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't need to say it. But one of the instructors, one time I asked a question and he said, the only way for me to uh, say that differently is to say it louder. Oh. And, and he said oh, it louder. Oh, and, he, and he said it louder. <laughs> I, I felt wow. so embarrassed. Well, that is definitely a weakness on his part. If he can't find a different way to say it and how but, rude. But, but, but you understand, I thought it was me. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. Like, this is the obvious way everyone gets it. Clearly, you just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I got my PhD and I was so happy. <laughs> and then what? What happened? Okay. So, uh, so in between, so here's what happened. I got my master's in math ed. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job at what was called the University of Southern Colorado because I knew I needed a break before that master's and the PhD. And so I got a job as the director of the learning center at the University of Southern Colorado. So I was there and um, then they told, when I interviewed, they asked me, where do you see yourself in five years? I said, probably getting a PhD because this is just a break for me. Mm -hmm. So I was very honest. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, well, if you get your PhD, you can come back and we'll hire you on a tenure track line. And they did. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So I went back there um, and worked there for about 10 years. And then it was starting to fall apart. So then interviewed for jobs in the university of, or was starting to send out applications. So I was doing a nationwide search. 
Mm-hmm. And the University of Northern Colorado was hiring also, but I didn't apply because I thought they wouldn't hire any of their students. Mm-hmm. And then they reached out to me and asked me to apply. They said, you know, I'd been gone for 10 years. I'd kind of made my own person so that they would consider me if I applied. Mm-hmm. So I got that job and I was there for about 15 years. And then last year was my first year at Colorado State. (laughs) Very good. Very good. So that's kind of the career trajectory. So you have many aspects of your life. You have many things going on. I know that you're a mother in addition to um, uh, uh, teaching and your research how do you prioritize things in your day or maybe a day is too short a period, but how do you set priorities in your life and how do you balance your time between the various aspects of things? Well, you know, I'm not very good. Uh, and I won't lie. I wake up and I feel sometimes stressed Mm -hmm. thinking about everything that I have to do. Um, but, um, I'm very spiritual. So if somebody, you know, I said, if somebody asked me to define myself, I would say say a worker. Uh, But to that, I would add, I'm very spiritual and I pray. And so I start by thinking, uh, being grateful, Mm -hmm. like, okay, you know, what are all the great things that are happening today or that are going on in my life? And I give thanks for those. And then I'm also very much a planner and I'm very organized. And so that helps me. So I have a giant whiteboard upstairs in my office where I try to put long-term plans on there. So that's like monthly stuff. And I do this in the same thing in my office at school. And then I have a weekly chalkboard calendar that's in my laundry room. And so that's like, okay, what's going to happen there? And of course I have the telephone, uh, but I tend to rely less on that to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And then I have a planner and I have my calendar on the refrigerator <laughs> and I color code things. Um, and so that helps to keep me organized and it's just like steps at a time. And then one of the things I've really been learning to do is to leave space in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I went to yoga this morning from 9.30 to 10.30, but then I I intentionally did not plan anything between that time and our meeting time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like to leave space in between just to breathe, just to let go and give myself time to detach from the previous thing before I get into the next thing. Mm -hmm. So I would say that my organizational skills help me. Um, I'm kind of looking at things, like I said, month by month basis or even year by year basis and, and then weekly and then daily. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your scholarship looks like, but in lay people's terms? Sure. The easy way for me to say it is this. So let me say it in non-lay persons, and then I'll say it in lays. So I, uh, my research is about the teaching and learning of undergraduate mathematics. Mm-hmm. 
And I've always been interested in the relationship of a concept of how it relates geometrically and algebraically. So how do we think about it in those two modes and how do we meld those together, mold those together so that they become one thing? And lately, well, not lately, for about 10 years now, I've been using this lens called embodied cognition. And it helps, and what that means is that we learn uh, using our body. So our learning is body-based. And so this could include intuition, could be pointing. It's just how do we convey ideas with our body? Because a lot of times our body knows something before we can articulate it or have words for it. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about how a child learns, if they want water, they might point to the faucet or point to their sippy cup because they don't have the word water yet. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they develop the word wawa or then, then water. And then much later, they learn how to spell it. Uh, and that's exactly how it happens in mathematics, that we first experience it in some sort of physical way, uh, tangible way. And then uh, we have our own words that we form, but then we can make it more formal. And so that's the philosophy that I follow in my research and in my teaching. And so I pay attention to students' facial expressions, their eye movement, their head movement, their gestures, and I ask them to pay attention to mine and to one another's. And so this is very important in my classroom. So I use this notion of embodied cognition um, when I do research. Mm -hmm. So when you teach a, a mathematical uh, idea, um, how, do, how does embodied cognition help with that? I mean, can you give us an example of how you might use this idea in a math classroom? Yes, I can. And it's hard to do when, because we're just going to be, because <laughs> uh, it, there's, no, uh, there's nothing for you to see. So there's mm -hmm. nothing visual for, for the hearers. So I will try to convey this in a way that uh, people can imagine it in their head because that's part of embodied cognition also, the imagination. Mm -hmm. So let's say I'm going to talk about uh, something being uh, an isomorphism. So I always tell my students, put your pencils down, look at my hands. And so an isomorphism means that two elements can live in, live in one set over here. Mm -hmm. And so I will have my hands gesturing towards my right. I have both of them. And I can say, and we can operate on them in that, in that world. Mm -hmm. And so I might bring my hands together, clasp or whatever, to indicate that we're operating on those elements to become one element. So now it's like my hands are together mm -hmm. and I can map them. And I will have moved my hands together to my left hand side. Mm -hmm. and I said, and we'll get an element over there. Mm-hmm. Or what we can do, so I'll go back to my right-hand side and I take each of my hands and I said, or we can map each of the elements individually and map them to the left-hand side over here. And then we can operate on them. Mm -hmm. And no matter what, the end result is the same. Mm -hmm. 
That's an example of embodied cognition. And so I might portray that first before I give them a formal definition of an isomorphism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also create physical activities where students have to engage in the mathematics. So, for example, I've created a 20 by 20 Cartesian plane made out of a tarp and duct tape. And students stand on the points, on the lattice points or wherever that I say. So they act as points on the Cartesian plane. They'll hold rope and to form different polygons. And then I have them act out the transformations. Uh And Mm. so that helps them to recognize that transformations are rigid motions. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also do things in the virtual world. So I might create dynamic labs on, for example, Geometer Sketchpad or GeoGebra, uh, where they get to investigate and discover an idea on their own uh, based on the lab that I have created. Mm -hmm. Oh, very nice. Mm -hmm. So notice I gave you examples of something in the mental world. For example, when I described isomorphism, something in the physical world with the TARP and then something in the virtual world. And so embodied cognition can live in all of those worlds or a blend of those. And usually it's a blend. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to take a little turn here. And you told us in graduate school, uh, after you'd finished your master's, you went to a place that you did not feel comfortable. You did not feel part of the community or that you belonged Could you tell us about a place or an experience where you really felt that you did belong and what that was like? Mm. Yeah, I know that you've sent me this question in advance and um, I have two and I want to share both Mm -hmm. because they're very different and for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So the first one uh, I'm sure most people know is my community with the Mathematical Association of America. Mm -hmm. I just feel so safe there Mm -hmm. and I get to be me and I love it because I have female friends like you too (laughs) I love that it's like oh my gosh I have female friends finally for the first time it's crazy (laughs) but that was huge for me Mm -hmm. um so I feel really safe there I feel nurtured I have been nurtured it's not that just that I feel it I it's very evident that I have been nurtured through the MAA from day one. Uh, And I felt it right away. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, Just taking me in, putting me on committees on things where I probably had no business being on that committee because I didn't know anything about it, but people were willing (laughs) to give me a chance and learn. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel very safe there. Uh, Like I said, nurtured. And I love the community part of it and the friends part. Then the second place um, is on my yoga mat. Mm. So because I get to just be me and it doesn't matter if the pose isn't perfect. And I am routinely reminded of that during class that it doesn't matter if you can't get into the pose, just go as far as you can. Mm -hmm. Or it's okay if you fall, just get right back up. That reminds me of my dad. And so I, and I, it's a place where my mind quiets down and I'm not thinking about my to-do lists. Mm -hmm. So those are two places that I feel very safe, but you know, the word I, it's safe, but I also feel so loved. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it strikes me that you really need both of those in your life. The mm-hmm. MA community, that's your worker self. Mm-hmm. You know? But you also have this community. And then your yoga, that's almost your spiritual self. You're like restoring so that yeah. you can return to your worker self. Yeah, that's my self-care. That's my self taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now, now we don't need to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to a college student or perhaps to your undergraduate self? Don't be so hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be perfect. Sometimes just being mediocre is okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Do you say that to your students? Do you, are you, are you um, clear yeah. about that with your students? Yes. Mm-hmm. I always, I tell them through my own stories. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was a grade junkie. That's the word I use for myself. <laughs> if it wasn't a 95 or better, I felt like a failure. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, uh, and part of that, I think, is because of that seventh grade goal of valedictorian. So I knew anything below a 95 was not going to get me to valedictorian status and probably nothing below a 98 was going to get me to valedictorian status. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I remind them that a C, an honest C uh, where you actually learned something and you learn from what you didn't get correct is much more valuable than a 95, mm-hmm. a stressed out 95. <laughs> mm-hmm. I yeah. want to just ask a quick question before we go to our rapid fire. Okay. That's unique to you because um, I'm asking as someone who's spent my entire career in the same at the same institution, but you've moved around mm-hmm. University of Southern Colorado, Northern Col- University, of Northern Colorado, and now Colorado state. So that's from my perspective, a really unique position. So what can you say about that? Mm-hmm. People ask me, have asked me about that. And uh, first of all, I don't think someone such as myself graduating from where I did could have started out at a research one institution. Mm-hmm. I've had to prove myself mm-hmm. over and over again. Uh, I don't have that luxury of, I don't, I mean, I didn't graduate from, you know, some prestigious university. Um, I have had to work for everything and I've had to prove myself over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um do I wish that I had started here? Yes, I, I love. I would have loved that this is where I've been for my whole career. Mm-hmm. Am I grateful for those other experiences? Definitely. I've learned so much from uh, those various places. And I'll tell you, one of the cool things about being at the University of Southern Colorado is all the Hispanic students, and they got me. I mm-hmm. loved that they understood if I said something in a particular tone that it I wasn't mad. It was, that was just my Mexican female self coming out mm-hmm. and they got it. And uh, I've had a difficult time finding that again. 
Mm-hmm. So, so I do miss that about that institution. I loved, loved that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for our quick fire questions, uh-huh. the first one is a fill in the blank. It's the only one that's a fill in the blank though, okay? Okay. Okay, so first one, mathematics is? Fun. <laughs> that was a fast answer. That I was fast. But usually I say sexy, but now I'm not sure I should be saying that, but I usually say math is sexy. <laughs> we'll take that. Okay. Where's a place you really enjoy? Anywhere on the water, on the beach. The sun shining on me. Mm-hmm. What's on your desk that would surprise us? Everybody knows I have pictures of Miguel everywhere. <laughs> uh, Miguel, your son. Mm-hmm. Miguel, my son. Yeah. But I, I always have a rosary everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. We should have... um change that question to what's in your laundry room because I think you might be the only person I know who has a chalkboard calendar in their laundry room maybe (laughs) (laughs) yep oh what's in my laundry room yeah (laughs) lots of things (laughs) what sound reminds you of home Mm. oh when the birds the doves early in the morning Mm. Mm mm-hmm that sounds like a nice, nice way to wake up. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tensi. We really appreciate. Oh my gosh. You thank talk you. With us. Was uh, it scary? No, I mean, nothing is scary <laughs> with you. I, the part is I've never shared really publicly like this mm-hmm. uh, about the accident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't even think I knew I was going to do that. Mm-hmm. But somehow those memories came up thinking about the different homes that I'd lived in. Mm -hmm. So thank you for, thank you for opening up like that with us. I think in an unusual sort of way, um, your honesty will really resonate with people Mm -hmm. who may not have the exact same story, but who have kind of a life-changing story like that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And they'll be encouraged to hear someone, how someone else made it forward. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I love you guys are doing this. Thank you. Well, that was a great time talking with Tensia. She, she's so strong and amazing. What did, what did you take away from our conversation? Yeah, I agree with you. I really appreciated her honesty. And I learned a lot about setting goals and even setting goals from an early age and establishing that as a lifelong habit, how she learned to work. But later in life, um, she actually learned to combine that with some self-care. So this worker spiritual combination she manages. And also I can't help but uh, appreciate the role of advising in her life. It really helps me um, want to invest more in that and how much just a single sentence, like she remembered exactly the sentence the advisor said to her at the University of North Northern Colorado. I think you can be successful here. Mm-hmm. She remembered that exactly. Mm-hmm. So those are the things I'm going to take away from this. Right. The difference that one single sentence can make in someone's life. 
That's amazing. Uh, I was certainly happy to hear that she has um, to-do lists of different levels scattered throughout her home because I can relate. <laughs> Color-coded. <laughs> Color-coded, yes. Great. Well, that was that was very fun. So thanks for joining us. And we're counting you in until next time. This is Della Indiana. So long. Count Me In with Dell Indiana is produced by the talented Sam Dunnewald. Music is by Casey Fenster and the podcast image is by Victoria Robinson. 